Well, today is the beginning of daylight savings time. In the springtime, our clocks spring ahead. And since you're here this morning, you were probably well warned. But have you ever thought, why the inconvenience? I mean, I used to think that daylight savings time's primary purpose was to provide longer hours for Little League baseball practice. But there are all kinds of reasons for our biannual ordeal. A primary rationale for daylight savings time is energy savings. With longer sunlight, the need for electric lights shortens. Did you know that in 2005, a cheap lobbyist, a chief lobbyist, maybe a cheap too, but a chief lobbyist for the expansion of daylight savings time was 7-Eleven. Evidently, more sunlight means time to sell more Slurpees. Daylight savings time is good for retail business. And did you know that Woodrow Wilson, an avid golfer, vetoed Congress's repeal of daylight savings time in 1919 because the president wanted longer days to stay out on the links. Yet there's another seldom mentioned reason for daylight savings time. Most crimes are committed under the cover of darkness. So an increase of ambient light during high crime hours allows people to better defend themselves and identify Potential perpetrators. Daylight savings time reduces crime. Well, that being true, it's obvious that there was no such thing as daylight savings time in 32 AD. For the night of the Passover was laden with sinister activity. High crimes abounded. That night, under the cover of darkness, evil came out to play. Lethargic disciples a traitorous Judas, a violent Peter, a ruthless posse, jealous Caiaphas, plotting Jews, complicit Romans. They were all criminal. Heaven's police blotter could hardly keep up. We're on the second leg now of Jesus' race to the finish line from a garden called Gethsemane to a police precinct named Gabbatha. We're tracking Jesus's Jesus from his grand arrival to his glorious return, from his triumphant entry into Jerusalem to his ascension back to heaven. And today is that night. All that happened from Gethsemane to Gabbatha took place under the cover of darkness. The events we'll talk about this morning were illuminated by moonlight and by torches and by campfire. The climactic sound of this tragic night will be a rooster crowing to greet the dawn. I don't know if you can chart the phases of the moon back to 32 AD, but I'll bet the moon that night was just a slither in the sky. On this particular night, the dark seemed the darkest. Well, the night began on a happy enough tone. Jesus and his disciples had left the upper room praising God. Matthew chapter 26 verse 30 wraps up the time they'd spent in the loft with an intriguing thought. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Imagine Jesus singing. I wish we'd had some kind of recording. Do you think he was a tenor or maybe a bass? He'll carry our sins. Could he carry a tune? 
We do know what hymns they sang. The basic order of the Jewish Passover hasn't changed since the time of Christ. And at the end of the Seder, everyone sings the Hallel Psalms. Here's a sampling of Psalm 113 through 118, lyrics that were sung that night by Jesus and his disciples. He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Jesus is about to submit to the will of his Father. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Jesus is going to go deep into the garden. And he's going to lift up his voice in fervent prayer that night. The pains of death surrounded me. In other words, the cross is looming. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul. He's about to receive strength for the next day. For you have delivered my soul from death. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Even throughout the cross, Jesus was fixed on resurrection. And then Psalm 118, verse 22, a song Jesus and his disciples most certainly sang that night. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This verse gets quoted five times in the New Testament. The architects of Judaism will reject Jesus before morning light, but God will make him the cornerstone of a new spiritual house, the church. They sang all these prophecies, Jesus and his disciples. For the Passover, most Jews were home with their families. Jesus and his disciples, they walked through empty streets that night. They went out of the Jewish section of the city, downhill toward the valley, just beside the colossal temple. Just a few hours earlier, that temple had been a beehive of activity. Thousands of families had brought lambs to be sacrificed for Passover. Priests were called in for duty. Thirty years later, Josephus, a Jewish historian, he counted 256,000 lambs slaughtered at the Passover. The temple was constructed with drains that siphoned off the blood and diverted it into the valley below. On this night, Jesus walks by the temple and across the Kidron Valley in that river of blood. Did he have to hurdle the bloody stream that flowed under his feet? For weeks, Jesus had been predicting his crucifixion. Earlier that night, he had spoke of his blood shed for his disciples. What feelings did it conjure up in Jesus when he saw the sacrificial blood draining through the valley? Payment of man's sin would ultimately require the blood of a perfect, sinless sacrifice. All of this blood from all of the lambs over all of the ages had set the stage for his sacrifice. It was all a reminder of what was before him. On the other side of the valley, the western slope of the Mount of Olives, Jesus and his men entered a garden. It was a spot they'd visited before. Olive trees dot the hill east of Jerusalem, And this garden was the site of a grove of trees and an accompanying press. The word Gethsemane means oil press. You know, when olives are harvested, they're bagged and they're put under a press. Weights pull down the arm of the press and squeeze the olives. The the olive oil runs into a trough that collects it. Well, Jesus and his disciples, they're coming to the oil press for the very same reason. Everybody will be squeezed this night. Commitments will be squeezed. Loyalties will be tested. 
Jesus is pressed. His moment of decision is finally here. Will Messiah fulfill the purpose for which he was sent? And the disciples, they'll be squeezed too. They'll be pressed of their pride, squeezed of their self-sufficiency. The oil of humility will flow afterwards. Well, at some point, maybe as they left the upper room, perhaps as they entered the garden, maybe somewhere in between, Jesus dropped a bomb on his disciples. Matthew 26, verse 31, he told them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. And then he quoted the Old Testament, Zechariah 13, verse 7. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And I can hear the disciples push back. No way, not us. Peter even pipes in. Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus responded, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. That's when Peter utters his boast. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And Matthew, who was there on location, he adds, and so said all the disciples. No one was willing to admit that night that they might succumb to the fear of the moment. No one asked for the Holy Spirit's help. They were all confident in their own courage. And yet, they'll all prove chicken before the rooster crows. Whenever I take a trip to Israel and I leave Kathy at home, she always asks me to bring one thing back, one item she loves for me to bring back from Israel, and that is some of the Israeli virgin olive oil. Oil from Israel is the best. Olive oil in Bible times was bottled to anoint kings and fuel lamps. It was used to soothe and cleanse The oil had varied purposes, but the only way to extract the oil from the olives was by smashing the olives. The skin was crushed, and the fiber was pressed into a paste. From there, the olive paste could be squeezed until it released its oil. And often, what God wants to do in us is only accomplished through pressure, and through crushing, and through squeezing. Stay alert and watch in prayer. Embrace His will regardless of the consequences. Acknowledge your own limitations and weaknesses. Realize His will is always accomplished or should be accomplished His way. Don't let the betrayal of man erode faith in God. Follow Jesus up close and personal. These are all lessons that the disciples learned that night and lessons we need to learn as well. But God cooks up these lessons only in the pressure cooker times of life. The tuition fee for these lessons is paid with pressing and with suffering and with brokenness. The Garden of Gethsemane was probably a private garden. Its owner had given Jesus the key. Anytime he was visiting Jerusalem, Jesus had access to this grove. Even today, there's a private grove right across the street from the crowded church. Slip the guard a few shekels, which we do, and you can enter into the quiet that awaited Jesus. It was a secluded spot where he could give himself to prayer. Once inside the garden, Jesus tells his disciples to pray that you may not enter into temptation. And this is always a good starter prayer. It acknowledges that we're vulnerable. That like a magnet, there's something in us that's drawn to temptation. 
We need a spark from God that repels that, ch- that ch- charge. Jesus then takes three of his men, Peter, James, and John, and he goes a little deeper into the olive grove. Finally, he tells them, watch with me, while he goes deeper still. Realize we're all followers of Jesus, but some of us go deeper. And some, even deeper. And prayer is always the way to deeper. Prayer is the spiritual equivalent of standing watch, of being at attention. Oh, we like to celebrate and sing praise in a crowd, but can we stand watch spiritually and shoulder a burden when no one else is around? Well, by this point, the wooden press has fallen on Jesus. Matthew tells us he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Dr. Luke notes, his sweat became like great drops of blood. Jesus is sweating, perspiring profusely. His sweat is as thick as blood. He's being squeezed. View this scene through the lens of all four Gospels, and an interesting picture emerges. Luke says that Jesus knelt. Mark says that he fell on the ground and prayed. Matthew records that he fell prostrate on his face. Put it all together, and Jesus collapses under the weight of this heavy burden. He kneels. He buckles. He stretches out face down. His crumbling posture posture represents his breaking heart. And three times, Jesus prays the same agonizing prayer. Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Hebrews 5 verse 8 speaks of Jesus' ordeal in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Imagine, God's son, Jesus Christ, had to learn obedience. Realize, obedience is not something you acquire by reading or by reciting or by hearing. You learn to obey by doing, by making right choices in strenuous situations. And this is what Jesus did in the garden of the oil press. This is what you and I are called on to do when we're pressed. We learn to submit to God's will, no matter how difficult it might be, no matter how against the grain it might feel. Understand what's going on in the heart of Jesus in the garden. Some folks erroneously assume that Jesus is trying to escape the rigors of the cross. Let this cup pass from me. Doesn't mean help me skip out on my duty. No, Jesus was born to die. The wise men brought embalming fluid to his baby shower. He'd been telling his disciples for months that he would be crucified John 17 verse 1 refers to the cross as his moment of glory. I don't believe the Son of God reached the climax of his mission and got cold feet. I believe the cup was the pain that came with the cross. The hurt. The betrayal. And this is what he hoped he might avoid. But he couldn't. Jesus began that night predicting that his disciples would stumble. He knew they would deny him. Earlier, he had sent Judas off to do his diabolical deed. In a few hours, his own people, the Hebrew nation, the people he came to save, would shout, crucify him, crucify him. You see, it's one thing to die for people who appreciate your sacrifice. It's another thing altogether 
to die for the people who hammer in the nails. I believe Jesus was tempted just as we're tempted when we're hurt to stop loving, to choose resentment, to nurse a grudge. Several psalms give a voice to Jesus' pain that night. Psalm 41 verse 9 predicts the Messiah's hurt and rejection. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55 verse 12, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has magnified himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, my companion and my acquaintance, we took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. Jesus and Judas had walked to the temple to worship side by side. I mean, how would you react if your BBF betrayed you? If your best bud forever sold you out for lunch money, how would you feel? Jesus knows the cross is his destiny, but the thought of all that comes with it is harrowing. If the Father could lighten the load, if he could remove the cup, if he could mitigate the pain, but the answer is no. For sin to be resolved, Jesus will have to absorb the full brunt of our punishment. He'll need to drink every drop of the painful potion instead of removing the cup in the garden with His Father through the prayer. Jesus finds the courage to drink not only the physical pain, but the rejection and the betrayal and the abandonment and the despair that He felt. The price of our forgiveness will even cost him a certain alienation from his own father. This makes this cup a stiff drink. Jesus could have avoided it all. Later he tells Peter that he had the authority to call 12 legions of angels to his defense. That's 72,000 angels. Jesus could have punched back at the arresting officer and landed a knockout blow. But if he had, the world would have remained in sin. And the church would have never been born. And you would have never been saved. And this world never redeemed. Thus the next day, Jesus will taste it all. He'll be wounded by friend and foe alike. His cup will overflow with hurt. But he accepted that cup the night before. He drank that cup this night in the garden. On the cross, he'll show amazing courage and composure and even compassion. But all he displays, he gained under the cover of darkness there in the oil press. By the time he's arrested, the victory's already been won. And we win the victory the same way Jesus did. We pray and we wrestle our will into submission to God's. Then we trust God and we drink whatever His cup might hold, whatever His will for us might be. We don't argue. We drink it. You see, none of us gets to choose the contents of our cup. His will and our circumstances are dictated by God. The one thing we know is that resentment is not an option. Jesus was called on to love His enemies, even those who minutes earlier had been His friends. I don't know what's in your cup this morning. Maybe it's marriage problems. Or a job loss. Or a friend's betrayal. Or an ornery co-worker. Maybe something that's really hard is in your cup. 
All I, all I know is that we're called on to take that cup and to drink it. We're being pressed. Jesus wants to teach us obedience. Don't try to escape. Don't opt for the shortcut. Pray for courage and accept the path God lays out for you. Oswald Chambers has a quote where he talks about our need to be broken and submitted to God's will. He writes this, Never object to the fingers He chooses to use to crush us. We say, if God would only use His own fingers and make me broken bread and poured out wine in a special way, then I wouldn't object. But when He uses someone we dislike, or some set of circumstances to which we said we would never submit to crush us, then we object. We must never try to choose the place of our own martyrdom. We accept our squeezing until it comes from the boss or the wife. We don't like that so much. Jesus will die the next day. But first he died that night, the night before, to his own likes and wishes and preferences. He surrendered totally to the will of God, even a cross. And we need to surrender to the will of God as well. When Jesus returns to his disciples, they're asleep. Can you imagine the three amigos cutting Z's? This is astonishing to me. In fact, this year's Super Bowl went down to the wire. 34 to 31. Everybody tells me it was a good game. Guess who slept through the entire fourth quarter? Yours truly. I woke up when the confetti was falling from the top of the the dome. I missed the game. But this was worse. The story of mankind begins in a garden called Eden. Man sins and fumbles away the planet over to Satan. In the end, God establishes a new heaven and new earth and restores this earth to its garden paradise. But in between those two gardens, the deciding battle is also fought in a garden called Gethsemane. Jesus is pressed and he prays. What happens in this garden will decide the salvation of man and the destiny of the universe. And guess what the disciples do? They're sawing logs. For three and a half years, Jesus has provided for these men. Finally, he needs their support, yet they're fast asleep. And Jesus confronts them. Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Isn't that so true? And this is why we need to learn obedience. Oh, we mean well. The Spirit's willing. Jesus gives us a new nature, but our flesh is weak. Our flesh so often fails to cooperate. It gets tired and weak and distracted. This is why we have to learn to obey. We have to teach ourselves to watch and to stay at it and to go deeper and to drink the cup even when it's spiked with hardship. Never resent it when God chooses to squeeze you. He does so for a reason. Well, the disciples, they're still rubbing the sleep from their eyes. When the garden gets invaded with stormtroopers, the traitor brought with him a priestly mob armed with swords and clubs. This was the temple security force. They'd all been told to arrest the man that Judas greets with a kiss. Matthew 26, verse 49 tells us Judas went up to Jesus and said, 
Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, Friend, notice he calls him friend. Why have you come? For years I wondered why the Jews needed, why the Jews needed Judas. They had seen Jesus on numerous occasions. They could have picked him out on their own. And why a kiss? Judas could have just pointed. I believe this was Satan's final attempt to embitter the Savior. This was the dagger in his back. The kiss was a symbol of friendship. Oh, Jesus expected the chains and the beatings and the whips and even crucifixion. But a kiss? Betrayed by the greeting of a friend? And yet Jesus looked Judas right in the eye and called him friend. He felt nothing for him but love. He'd already downed the bitter cup and he was ready for whatever might come afterwards. Through all of this, a groggy Peter, he's been trying to wake up. It just dawned on him what's happening. Peter grabs his sword. He's going to fight off these temple goons. He swings and the fellow ducks at the last second. Peter misses splitting his, giving him a new hairline and he clips off his ear. It's Dr. Luke that tells us what Jesus did. He touched his ear and healed him. He reached in the dirt and he pulled out the ear and he maybe spit on it and wiped it clean. I don't know. And then he put it back on his head. I, I bet you the man didn't complain. Imagine Jesus' last miracle before the cross was to heal a wound inflicted by his own disciple. And it's sad, but he's been having to perform that same miracle ever since. So many times we're like Peter. It was said of Peter, he fought the wrong enemy, used the wrong weapon, had the wrong motive, achieved the wrong result. Peter tried to do God's bidding his way. Peter knew nothing of victories won through love and sacrifice. Jesus didn't come to force our compliance, but to serve and win our allegiance. John 18 verse 11 tells us, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? As Jesus drinks the cup of his Father's will, he orders Peter to put away his sword. And with that, the Lord of glory was arrested. He was bound with chains. And he was led away under the cover of darkness. Matthew 26, verse 56, pours salt in Jesus' wound. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Imagine that. All forsook him. I mean, the gospels focus on Peter. It's denial and Judas' betrayal. But every one of the other disciples that night had a similar story. They too had forsook him. What happened that night is a microcosm of the world we live in. We all live under the cover of darkness. Evil people do evil deeds in the shadows. Their crimes against God and His people are emboldened because of the night. Yet you and I are called on to drink the cup of God's will, to love the Judas in our lives, to absorb the kiss when it comes, to heal the attacker, to be pressed, to learn obedience. In a world gone wrong, we're to do what's right. We're to learn to obey whatever that might mean for us. This is the cup we've all been given to drink.
Jesus' commitment to the will of God never faltered, even under the cover of darkness, and neither should ours. Well, the Pharisees, they were still smarting over Jesus' expose on their hypocrisy. The chief priests, they had lost money to Jesus when he cleansed the temple. The Sanhedrin, the aristocratic Jews, they were worried about all his talk of a kingdom, how this would disrupt the fragile partnership between them and Rome. And the Romans themselves, they only wanted to ensure a quiet, peaceful, orderly Passover. In the end, everybody had a reason why they wanted Jesus dead, but no one wanted to do the deed. What charge could they use? I mean, the man was innocent. How could we justify it? Boy, we need a trial. And six times over the next few hours, Jesus will be legally scrutinized by judge and tribunal. You know, until I visited Jerusalem, I pondered how all of this movement could take place in just a few short hours. From the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem to southwest of the city, the priestly neighborhoods of Annas and Caiaphas, to the northeast corner of the Temple Mount in the Roman fortress of Antonio, a trip back to the city center in King Herod, and then back to the headquarters of Pilate. You assume all that travel would take quite a while. But one trip to Jerusalem sorts it out for you. Today, the entire old city is less than one square mile. Jerusalem is a compact place. You can walk in Jesus' footsteps from his arrest to the place of crucifixion in less than an hour, especially at night when the narrow streets are empty. Eventually, Jesus ends up before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, but the Jews have to try him first. John 18 verse 13 says that immediately after his arrest, Jesus was taken to Annas, the former high priest. At the time, the Jewish priesthood was more like the Italian mafia. And this Annas was the godfather. Out of respect, he gets first shot at Jesus. Note, though, throughout Jesus' tour of Jewish jurisprudence, no one is concerned with his rights. It's all about trumping up charges to condemn him. Next, he's brought to the mansion of Caiaphas the current high priest, if the previous trial was a hearing, maybe a grand jury probe, this is a federal prosecution. You know, today you can go to Jerusalem and you can visit this house. The basement doubled as a dungeon. It's where they kept folks who ran afoul with the religious system. Caiaphas had henchmen that would rough up the accused. On this night, they mocked and cursed the king of heaven. Luke tells us that they blindfolded Jesus and they struck him in the face. You know, when God created the human body, he created us with protective instincts that sort of buffer the blows. Our reflexes react in ways that protect us. But with a blindfold, your reflexes don't work. It's mean. It's cruel. The abuse ordered by Caiaphas that night was just beginning the beginning of the physical torture that Jesus would face. Upstairs at Caiaphas' crib, the Sanhedrin had gathered a quorum. This was the 70-member Jewish Supreme Court. It had jurisdiction over the fate of a fellow Jew. And the Sanhedrin had come this day loaded for bear. Bogus witnesses, lies, lies, and more lies. The goal wasn't justice. It was to impose a death penalty on Jesus. Over the previous months, Jesus had run roughshod 
over the Jews' legalistic sensibilities. He had disregarded the rabbi's interpretation of keeping the Sabbath. Jesus had forgiven sins and commuted the adulteress and casted out demons and referred to God as his Father, all things that only deity could do. Jesus had threatened the temple and the sacrifices and the cleansing rituals and the kosher laws. His critique had dismantled the whole Jewish religion. Oh, the Jews had plenty of beasts with Jesus. But they wanted a charge that would stick, that would justify a capital sentence. Oh, didn't he purport to be the king, the Messiah? And of course, the only way such a claim would not be a capital offense is if it was true. Well, don't worry, that possibility was never considered, not by these Jews. Caiaphas cut right to the chase. He barks at Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 63. He says, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. The word Christ means Messiah or chosen one. He says, tell us, are you the Son of God? And remember the Jewish thought process. The son of a cow is a cow. The son of a man is a man. Thus, the Son of God is God. He's telling, he's asking, are you, Jesus, claiming to be God? Mark is the one who tells us his explosive answer. Jesus says, I am Jesus assumes the name that God gave to Moses, I am that I am. He claims to be God in the most definitive way possible. You know, early in his ministry, Jesus had muffled this kind of declaration. After raising the dead, after casting out demons, he he said, don't tell anybody about it. He ordered silence. Why did he do that? Well, he didn't want to incite a political push that would try to crown him king. You see, it's only after the crowds have turned their back on him. It's only after the cross is his immediate destiny. It's only after the only crown now planned for him is a crown of thorns. It's only then that Jesus embraces the title of Messiah or King. Jesus answered Caiaphas, And you will see the Son of Man, an Old Testament term for Messiah, sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In essence, Jesus is saying, today you've judged me, but one day soon I'll return and it'll be me who will judge you. According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Caiaphas tore his clothes and he shouted, blasphemy! And he asked for a verdict. That's when the Sanhedrin replied, deserving of death. Bears noting how the gospel writers do such a good job of dramatic writing. They whisk now from courtroom to courtyard, from the trial of Jesus to the testing of Peter. Matthew 26 verse 58 shifts the scene. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Three times that night... By the fire outside the house, Peter will deny his Lord. The first time in front of a servant girl, no less. Here, the mighty Peter, who earlier bragged, even if I have to die, I will never deny you. 
Now he chickens out in front of a campfire girl. What happened to Peter? Look again at Matthew chapter 26. Peter followed him at a distance. Are you following Jesus at a distance? He allowed some distance to gather between him and Jesus. You see, he refused to drink the cup. He refused to embrace God's will. And a distance developed. Jesus went deep the night before. He wrestled his feelings into submission. He accepted the will of God. He gulped down the cup despite its painful contents. But Peter did none of the above. He didn't need to pray. He was full of self-confidence. He wasn't vigilant. He slept. Oh, I'll catch up later. Peter didn't even try to stay in step with Jesus. And guess who folds and who remains faithful? I wonder how many folks today follow Jesus but at a distance. I like how Vance Havner described his relationship with Jesus The Lord had the strength, and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. It was an unbeatable combination. And this is the lesson that Peter learns. He gets schooled in humility and real faith in God. Again, Hebrews 5 verse 8, Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned to obey when he was pressed and under fire. And what was true for Jesus was true for Peter. And it's even true With us, we learn to obey when we're squeezed. And this all happened under the cover of darkness. And as the dawn gets ready to break, a rooster splits the silence of the night. Twice it crows. Something like that. One trip to Jerusalem, Kathy and I, we were walking the walls around Jerusalem when we heard a rooster. It's an odd sound. You don't hear many roosters in the city. But when we heard it, we thought of Peter. Matthew 26 verse 75 says, When Peter heard the rooster, his failure hit him. It grabbed him and he went out and wept bitterly. That word bitterly, it refers to the bowels. In other words, it churned up his stomach. He couldn't stomach himself anymore. Imagine the guilt and the shame and the regret and now the embarrassment. A river of tears flowed down Peter's cheeks. How do you recover from this? You know, Judas never recovered. Essentially, he and Peter, they committed the same sin, expressed the same response. Judas actually went back to the temple and threw down the money, the blood money. He tried to give back his 30 pieces of silver and undo what he did, but he couldn't. So he went out and he hung himself. You know, today we name churches and cities and universities and even our sons, Peter, while the name Judas is shunned. What was the difference between Peter and Judas? I'll tell you, it was one word. Repentance. Repentance. Sin isn't something you can undo and avoid and pretend like it never happened. 
Rather than undo it, you have to own it. You have to take responsibility for your sin and its consequences and start from right there to live a different life, a life pleasing to God. When Judas couldn't undo what he had done, he looked for the easy way out. He hung himself. Peter too was crushed. Peter too wept bitterly. But he turned around and he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He repented. He started from there in the school of discipleship. How do we wrap up all that transpired from Gethsemane to Gabbatha? Well, let me try. It all happened under the cover of darkness. It was dark in more ways than one that night. And much of our lives today are, is lived out in the darkness. We get betrayed. We get forsaken. We get hurt. We get falsely accused. God keeps us in the pressure cooker. Why? So that we can learn obedience. So that we can make right choices even in strenuous circumstances. We accept that cup or we reject it. We can embrace God's will and follow close. or We can let a distance grow between us and God. At first you won't detect that distance. Then one day you'll wake up and you'll deny Him and you won't even know that you did. Last week's take home from our lesson was love people to the end. Even when you're rejected, never give up on love. The word this week is accept the contents of the cup God has for you to drink. Remain in the pressure cooker of His will. Follow Him close and learn obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.